First Samuel chapter 13 is where we are tonight. Let me pause and pray. Lord, it is good to be in your house. It is good to open up your word. It is good to center our hearts when we think about all the craziness in our world. It's good to just come into your house and to be reminded of what is true, what is right, and what is just, the things that are pure, the things that are lovely, Lord, the things that are praiseworthy. We think on these things, and we praise you for your word, and we thank you for this story. It might be ancient, Lord, but it is timeless, and we pray for great application to our hearts tonight. And we give you the praise and the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So Saul is anointed in chapter 10 as the first king of Israel. Not by God's design, but the people have begged God for a king because they didn't really want to serve him as king. And so God gives them what they want so that they will realize how much better they had it when God was solely their king and not an earthly man. But nevertheless, Saul is anointed as the first king of Israel in chapter 10. The people all don't at first accept him. Some like that he's their king, others don't. And Saul's leadership is first tested in chapter 11. And we looked at this last week, so I'm just giving us a running start to where we are tonight. In chapter 11, there's a king, a foreign king of the Ammonites. His name is Nahash. Nahash in Hebrew means serpent, so you get an idea of the kind of guy that this foreign king is. And he comes against the Israelites living on the eastern side of the Jordan River, the people in Jabesh Gilead, and he threatens them with war unless they enter into a treaty with him. And the treaty that he uh, proposed to them was that he wouldn't kill them if they allowed him to poke out all the eyes of all the men, the right eyes of all the men. This would reduce their capacity to be a fighting force. And the men of Jabesh Gilead say, well, let's think about it. You know, if you're about to lose your right eye, you want some time to think about that. And, um, and so, you know, for whatever reason, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, says, okay, go ahead, you can have some time to think about this. And so they go to their fellow Israelites on the western side of the Jordan River, and they declare what uh, is happening. And um, Saul overhears this in Gibeah. And so Saul says, we're not taking this. And he rallies the men of Israel, 300,000 soldiers, to go against the Ammonites. And so that was in chapter 11 and into chapter 12. And so what I did last week, and I'm going to continue to do tonight, is share principles from these chapters that we can kind of glean from God's Word. So last week in chapter 11, we looked at how the enemy actively works to take away our ability to see things clearly. So Nahash, this serpent named king of the Ammonites, wanting to poke out the right eye of all the fighting men, that's kind of this, this uh, parallel for us about how the enemy... Uh, in our lives, works to try to deceive us. We have to be on guard against it. And number two, righteous anger is a necessary response to the enemy's evil tactics. We saw Saul rise up there in chapter 11. He says, we're not going to take this. We're going to go to war against them. And uh, number three, it is always a good thing when we return to the place of our first love. Because after they had victory over the Ammonites... Samuel the prophet said, we need to go back to Gilgal, to the place where they first made a covenant with God when the Hebrews came across the Jordan River into the promised land 
to kind of reestablish our commitment to God and understanding our relationship with him. And so they went to Gilgal. That was that place where they first made a covenant with God. They had their Passover. They came into the promised land. They set up these memorial stones. Uh, Gilgal was this place of remembrance. And so Samuel takes him back there and says, we've got we've to return to this place where we first made this covenant, this commitment to God. And so that's what they did. And so chapter 11 gave us those principles. And then also last week, one principle from chapter 12, God who is unseen works through people who are seen. Nevertheless, keep your eyes on him instead of them. Chapter 12 was about Samuel the prophet, kind of giving a summary of his life and of his ministry. He's, he's uh, up there in years now. He's about ready to retire to the villages. And um, that was a joke. Are you awake on Wednesday nights? <laughs> retire to the villages. Okay. And uh, going to draw some Social Security, and he's going to just kind of kick back. And, um, you know, he, he was a prophet um, uh, for, you know, many years for Israel, but then now he was going to, you know, have a nonprofit ministry and because uh, he was going to retire. Okay. Anyway, um, it's late in the day. I get it. All right. So Samuel recalls the history of Israel and he includes himself and he clu- includes some of the other judges in chapter 12 by name. He goes about Gideon, Jeroboam and, and Badan and, and Jephthah and, and um, he talks about Moses and Aaron. And he says, look, God has used people in the course of human history, uh, and he has. And Samuel says, but don't don't ever think that it's the people who have accomplished great things. It's God who has accomplished great things through these people. And so never take your eyes off the Lord and onto human vessels. People are just that. They are the vessels. I remember Chuck Smith years ago at a pastor's conference uh, saying, you know, when when a surgeon uh, does wonderful work in the operating room, you know, nobody thanks the scalpel, all right? The patient thanks the doctor, and uh, we're just scalpels, uh, people who serve the Lord. We're just doing his work. We're just the vessels or the tools in his hands, but he's the ultimate one who does the good work. And so, Samuel reminds the people of that. So all of that to say, we're, we're now into chapter 13. So they've had this great victory over the, over the Ammonites. Um, Samuel has reminded them the victory came from the hand of the Lord. And so chapter 13, verse 1. So Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. So remember, I mentioned a moment ago that in chapter 11, when they went to war, Saul gathered 300,000 men of Israel to fight against the Ammonites. But now here in chapter 13, he's sending home 327,000. Well, he had a total of 330,000. He sends back 327,000, and he's left with 3,000 fighting men. That's all he has here at the beginning of chapter 13. And, um, and we're introduced here for the very first time in the Bible to Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan is mentioned there uh, in, in verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men. He had 2,000 with himself and another 1,000 were with his son, Jonathan. Now, if we have time tonight and we get into chapter 14, we're going to see a chapter that is devoted to uh, uh, Jonathan. And uh, you're going to see, and I'll just give you this little preview, Jonathan is a fearless man, he's a courageous man, he's a bold man for the Lord, 
Uh, he has a falling out with his father, which is not uncommon, unfortunately, even in today, where fathers and sons or mothers and daughters um, sometimes have a falling out for various reasons. And he's going to have a falling out with his own father. But I will tell you this, it is no fault of Jonathan's. Uh, Saul, uh, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, gets off to a great start, but he doesn't finish well. He starts out as a man who's pretty contrite. He's pretty humble. He doesn't even want to be king. He's hiding among the baggage. He, when, when Samuel calls for him to be introduced to the people, he doesn't even want to be introduced. He can't really avoid seeing him, though, because the Bible says that Saul stood a full head taller than anybody else in Israel. But he's hiding because he's that kind of a reluctant leader. And so he starts out well. He's reluctant. He's humble. He's kind of contrite. I don't really want to be king. But power starts to go to his head. Power corrupts. He starts to get a, an ego. He's, he starts to um, be uh, very paranoid about who's going to try to take over control. And so you see his heart and his mind unravel in the course of going through these chapters. And Jonathan, unfortunately, becomes one of the casualties along the way, his own son. We're going to see here in a moment that he determines to kill his own son. So this is, this is very tragic what's happening in this family. But Jonathan, to his credit, is a man who is a valiant warrior. Uh, he really trusts God. He is very courageous. And so this is the first time we're introduced to him here. And so verse 3 says, And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Uh, by the way, the word Hebrew is, is uh, synonymous for Israelites. It's derived from uh, a word, Ibri, which is first used to describe Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, verse 13. And Ibri means one who travels from a distance. So Abraham's descendants became known by that word that was attached to him because Abraham came from a great distance. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, came from Iraq. He came from the city of Ur, which was in the region of the Chaldeans or the Mesopotamia region between the Tigris and Euphrates. So Ibri means those who have traveled from afar. Hebrew is the English derivation of that word. And, and so Saul says, I want all the Hebrews to hear this, all the Israelites, and Verse 4 says, now while Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines. Now, is that what the Bible says? Saul didn't attack the garrison of the Philistines. Jonathan, his son, did. But Saul doesn't correct this. So you get, you're starting to see him unraveling here. It's like he's going to take credit for something he didn't do. He's going to let the Israelites think that he's the hero in the story, but he's not. It was his son who attacked this garrison, this little military post of the Philistines. So everybody who heard said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. So verse 5, then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. So you'll notice in the Bible that the Philistines are perennial enemies of the Israelites. They are not the ancient Palestinian people. They were seafaring people who came from the island of Crete, from the area of Greece and the islands of Crete. Amos tells us that in Amos 9 verse 7. But the Philistines come, they're seafaring people. They come, they settle along the coast of the Mediterranean, along the Gaza Strip. So that's why some people think, well, the ancient Philistines are today's Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip, but they're not. Uh, but that's where they did settle. And they are constant enemies of the Israelites. So here they come. They gather together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots. 
and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. So a great number of the Philistines come. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. That's over on the eastern side of the Jordan River in what is today the country of Jordan. So people are taken off. They're afraid. They see the Philistines coming. The Philistines were vicious um, warriors. They were very adept at uh, iron, and thus they had all of these chariots, they had swords, uh, they had these spears, they had weapons out of iron, and here they come. And so the Israelites are terrified, they begin to scatter, they begin to hide. And it says, as for Saul, he was in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Verse 8, and then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. Now, in the margin of your Bible, write chapter 10, verse 8. And I'm going to take you back to it because it's important to our story. Just one verse. In chapter 10, when Samuel the prophet anoints Saul as the first king of Israel, Samuel gives Saul some instructions. And one of the first instructions that Samuel gave to Saul back in chapter 10, verse 8, was this. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. Okay, that's Samuel's instructions to him. I'm going to come and meet you at Gilgal, but not for a week. I want you to wait seven days. And when I get there, Samuel says, I'll offer peace offerings and I'll offer sacrifices there, burnt offerings. Okay, so wait for me and I'm going to show up. All right, now go back to chapter 13. Again at verse 8. Then he, that Saul, waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Now he does come, all right, but listen, verse 9, so Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me, and he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. Okay, so here's what's happening. The people are starting to scatter. They're afraid of the Philistines. Saul, in an effort to try to keep people together, is looking at his watch. They didn't have watches, just go with me. And he's like, it's been seven days. Samuel isn't here to offer the burnt offerings. So I'm going to go ahead and take it upon myself to do that. Now, first of all, First of all, it's not the eighth day yet, okay? So Samuel's not late. This is still the seventh day. You're rushing it, Saul, okay? And to make matters worse, Saul, you're not a priest. You're a king of the tribe of Benjamin. Samuel is of the tribe of Levi. He is a priest and a prophet, but he's the only one who has authority to offer sacrifices. That is reserved solely as the responsibility of a priest. Saul is acting in a role that he was not called to act in. 
But he's going to take it upon himself because why? He's responding in fear. People are scattering. I'm going to lose my army. All the people of Israel, they're all afraid. So I got to do something as the leader. And so he acts like a priest here, but he's not a priest. And he offers these sacrifices. And then as soon as he slaughters the animals and offers the sacrifices, guess who shows up? And right on time. It's not the end of the day yet. Samuel said, I'll be there on the seventh day. Wait seven days for me. And and Saul's like, six and a half days and you're late. Sorry, I'm going to do this myself. He wasn't late. But Saul is rushing this. Why? Because he's afraid. And he doesn't want to lose control. Okay? And so he goes out to greet Samuel. Hey, Sam, hey, good to see you. Good to see you. And Sam's not happy. Sam's not happy at all. Look what he says. He says in verse 11, what have you done? What have you done? Saul said, when when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Okay, he's making excuses here. He should have just said, like, stop already. Have, have, you ever, have you ever said things and made matters worse? Like, you know, you're trying to justify yourself or defend yourself. And what do you end up doing? Digging the hole deeper. Saul should have just said, oh, man, I rushed this. I am sorry big time. That's what he should have said. But instead, he's like, well, let me give you three, three reasons why I went ahead and did this. Number one, the people were running fast. Number two, you were late which he wasn't. And number three, the Philistines are coming in as fast as the people are leaving. So I had to take matters into my own hands and I had to do this. And then Samuel said to Saul, verse uh, 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. Okay. So if you're taking notes, a couple of principles from chapter 13, here's the first one. Waiting on the Lord is always better than operating in fear. Now, our human inclination is to operate in fear, Um, but that's not the Lord. Perfect love drives out fear, right? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear is not of the Lord. Fear is always of the enemy or of our flesh or both but it is never of the Lord. The only kind of fear that is of the Lord is a healthy reverential fear of the Lord. But this kind of fear that we're talking about here is when we're just gripped with panic. And Saul was gripped with panic, and he should have waited on the Lord. I'm just going to trust the Lord. Samuel said seven days, so I'm going to just wait. When day eight shows up, well, then that's a different story, but it's still day seven, so I'm going to wait here. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm not going to give in to fear. People are scattering. People are scattering quickly. The Philistines are upon us. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to trust the Lord. And sometimes you have to talk yourself off the ledge, don't you? There are times when you hear some news, and instead of going to the Lord, what do you do? You go to Google. Am I right? Can anybody relate to what I'm saying? Come on, let's just be real tonight, friends. You're going to Google this, and now guess what? Do you have a better sense of peace now? No. Now you're bombarded with all kinds of things. And, you know, years ago, like, I I had this eye twitch that was, like, for a week. And I was like, what is... And so I Googled eye twitch. I had a a brain tumor. (laughs) I had a brain tumor years ago. 
That's what I had convinced myself of because it said that there's this correlation like, you know, it's either that or, or maybe I need to get more rest. You know what I'm saying to you? And that's what it was. I just needed to get more rest. And so we have to stop this because then you start to Google stuff and you don't have peace now. You have more fear than you did before. And so Saul is in that mode. He's like, people are scattering. Philistines are coming. I, I'm not going to wait upon the Lord. And he gives in to fear. And we have to guard against fear in our own hearts. It's better to wait on the Lord always than operate in fear. And then number two, what we see here, and this is important too, because part of what Samuel says to him is, you've done a very foolish thing. You've disobeyed the Lord. Samuel gave him a simple instruction. First instruction as king. I'm going to meet you in Gilgal after seven days, and I will offer sacrifices there. See you later. And he can't even follow the basic instructions. And this is important. It's point number two. With God, 99% obedience is 100% disobedience. You know, there's not a, there's, and this is true in life in general, right? Like, you can't say in a marriage that if you're 99% faithful, that's good enough. No, 99% faithfulness is unfaithfulness right? You can't say you're 99% loyal to as a friend or to the company. That's 100% disloyalty. Well, I tell the truth 99% of the time. Well, then you're a liar. You know, I mean, we, we, have, we, can't, we can't justify that 1%. That's what Saul was trying to do here. Well, you know, I, you know, I thought I was waiting. It technically is the seventh day. And I'm like, no, no, you're, you're not following the instructions completely. And 99% obedience is 100% disobedience. We can't justify ourselves with God. When God says things that are very specific in his word, we better heed those things. And we ought not to try to cut ourselves slack because we obeyed 99% of it. And that's why we need grace, because we're going to fail. And that's why we need to cry out to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness and mercy. And he's a merciful God. But we can't go around justifying our behavior if we're only 99% obedient. And so... Samuel uh, rebukes Saul here, and notice the rest of what he says, uh, the middle of verse 13, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now, verse 14, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, Saul will not be immediately stripped of his rule, of his reign. That will happen some years later. He's only about a couple years into his reign, and uh, he, he ends up uh, reigning about another 30 years. So it's not that God immediately strips him of his reign. But Samuel puts him on notice that you're not going to be, you're not going to be reigning forever, and you're not going to now have a son on the throne who might succeed you, because you've disobeyed God. And if you've disobeyed Him in the little things, you're going to disobey Him in the big things. And so Samuel says, "Guess what? God's already chosen a man after His own heart." Now, who's he referring to? David. Now, please make note: David is not even born yet. It's interesting, too, because this is just a side note, as we'll get into later, Saul's son Jonathan and David become the best of friends. In fact, so much so 
that the progressive liberal theologians look at that and say, well, that's a justification for some kind of a gay relationship. They did not have a homosexual relationship. When we get there, we'll talk about it. But they were best of friends. But it would mean that Jonathan was at least 25 to 30 years older than David. So there was a, there was a generational difference, and yet they were still best of friends. And God had already providentially selected David, and David wasn't even born yet. So this is, this is a very interesting timetable when you look at how things unfold. Um, Saul will eventually be replaced uh, by David, but after much struggle and reluctance, it's, it's interesting, as I mentioned, Saul was reluctant to be king on the front end, and he was reluctant to give up his reign on the back end. And, um, and so uh, Samuel pronounces this uh, statement against uh, Saul, and that God has chosen another man after his own heart. Now, I love that statement, and we'll come back to it, I'm sure, when we get more into the life of David as we get further into First and Second Samuel. But as most of you know, anything about David's life, he was far from a perfect man. Um, he was guilty of a lot of things. Some of them were capital offenses, like accessory to murder and adultery. In those days, those were capital offenses. You could be killed for such a thing, and yet he, he threw himself on the mercy of the Lord, and God was merciful to him. And... I just think it's a, a wonderful reminder to us that uh, even though David had many shortcomings and sins in his life, the one thing that marked David as a man after God's own heart was that he was quick to repent and he was contrite in heart. And um, God is not looking for sinless people, otherwise who else could he use? That's why he sent Jesus to die on a cross. No one else was perfect enough to die for the sins of the world. But he uses guys like David, and um, the reason why he's a man after God's own heart is because despite his many faults, David was also a man who wept over his sins. He was repentant over his sins. He was contrite. He was broken, and he would run to the Lord and find mercy with the Lord. So we'll get to him much later. But it says in, in verse 15, And then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Okay, that's his fighting, that's his army now. It's been reduced from 3,000 at the beginning of the chapter. He started with 330,000, and then he um, whittled it down to 3,000, and now it's down to 600. Um, 2,400 have deserted from the 3,000 because of the fear of the Philistines. So that's the army that he has now. Well, verse 16, Saul... Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle, and the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares. That's about two-thirds of a shekel. Your footnotes might tell you that. 
So they charged for sharpening the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. And so it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So uh, here's how chapter 13 ends, and we'll get a little bit into chapter 14 tonight before we run out of time. Um, the, again, the Philistines were, were masters at uh, working iron. And there were no blacksmiths in Israel. And the reason was because the, the weapons that the Israelites fought with were bows and slings. So they didn't need a blacksmith. Uh, but now they're kind of outmatched because the Philistines are workers of iron. Um, I went uh, with Terry years ago to uh, Oktoberfest uh, up in Thermont that they have every year. And there's this blacksmith who was, you know, working on these tools. And, you know, he's pounding out the, you know, the, the iron on, on these anvils. And, you know, so I was talking to him a little bit about it. And he was shaping different, you know, things and making different things out of wrought iron. And, and I said, how hot does it get in, in that furnace? You heat it up before he starts pounding it on the anvil. He says, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, it takes, it takes a lot to begin to make um, metal so the iron's that it's malleable like this. And so he's shaping all of these things, these decorative items made out of wrought iron and stuff. And, you know, I appreciated the skill and the labor involved in doing that kind of thing. There's no blacksmiths in Israel at this time because they weren't working with iron. Philistines were. That's why they had the chariots, they had the swords, and they had the spears. So whenever an Israelite, before this time of conflict, needed their plows to be sharpened, needed any kind of knives or axes to be sharpened, they'd go to a blacksmith at some garrison, at some military outpost that the Philistines controlled. And then they would pay them a fee. Can you sharpen my, my uh, uh, plow? Can you sharpen my axe? And they pay a fee for it. Well, the Philistines are like, you ain't getting any help from us now because we're at war with you. We're not sharpening anything for you. We're not going to help you get swords. We're not going to help you get spears. And so the Israelites are outmatched here in terms of military warfare. They have slings, they have arrows. The Philistines have chariots, they have swords, they have spears. But what's so interesting here is that the Israelites have God. And when you have God, you don't need all the other stuff. And so it came about in the day of battle, let me read again verse 22, that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. Only Saul and Jonathan themselves had a sword or a spear. The entire rest of the 600 men who were fighting with them didn't have any swords or spears. Again, probably they still had their, their bows and their slings, but they didn't have swords and spears. And here's the last principle from chapter 13. Though the odds may be against us, God is for us. You see, sometimes, hear me on this, and, and I know that many of you know this, but so it might be a good reminder if you already know this or new information if you don't. Sometimes God reduces us to the place of complete helplessness so that we can see the mighty hand of God. That's when he's most visible. When, when we can get the job done ourselves, then how will we ever see how God intervened here? So a lot of times what God will do so that we can see his mighty hand at work 
is he allows us to get in these positions where we feel completely helpless and we feel completely beside ourselves and we realize unless God intervenes here, this ain't going to happen. That's where the Israelites were here at the end of chapter 13. We don't have the weaponry that the Philistines have, but God has reduced them to a place where they will be able to see his mighty hand at work. Chapter 14, let's see how far we get into chapter 14. And now it happened one day that Jonathan, here's this chapter that deals a lot with him. Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrisons that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, he's also known later as Ahimelech, he's the high priest at this time. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, that's the priestly garment. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes and the name of the other Sene. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be... That the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. you got to love this guy. He's like, I'm not going to tell dad. We're going on a secret mission, and we're just going to trust the Lord, and we're going to do this uh, for God's glory, and so don't tell anybody. And so his armor bearer goes with him. They're, they're you know, passing through these sharp stones that are part of the outcropping between them and the Philistines, and, uh, and, and Jonathan is just full of faith, and he's full of courage, and he's fearless. He's like, we're going to take him on by ourselves. And so verse 7, so the armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. And then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, if they say, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, if they say, come up to us, Then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. So so Jonathan's like, you know, telling his armor bearer, like, okay, here's the deal. If they say, come on up, we're going to go up, because that's going to be a sign. I know in my heart that means God's given us favor, and we're going to have victory. If they say, we're going to come down to you, we're just going to stand here, because God's not with us. So this is how we're going to test the will of the Lord here. Let's see what they answer. And so... Both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, verse 11. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. And then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us. There's the magic words. Come up to us and we will show you something. Now, if you have another translation, NIV says, and we will teach you a lesson. Okay, so they're full of themselves, right? The Philistines are like, why don't you guys come on up here? We see you've crawled out of your holes. Why don't you come up here? We'll show you something. We'll teach you a lesson. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. 
and they fell before Jonathan. In other words, the Philistines fell before Jonathan. He's, he starts, he's got a sword. He's one, only he and his dad. And he starts chopping them down. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. So his armor bearer's behind getting the leftover Philistines that Jonathan didn't get. And so to, together between the two of them, you know, they're just knocking them down. Well, verse 14, that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. Again, other translations, NIV adds, it was a panic sent by God. Verse 16, now the the watchman of Saul and Gibeah, Benjamin, looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now, he asked the high priest to do that because he wants to inquire the will of the Lord. The Israelites, the 600 soldiers with Saul, see the Philistines scattering. And they realize somebody is fighting them. Who's fighting them? They take the roll, and they're like, Jonathan and the armor bearer are missing. Those are the two who must be fighting them. So Saul says to the high priest, bring the ark here so we can inquire of the Lord if we're supposed to go fight. <laughs> do you really need to do that? Because it says in verse 19, now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. And so Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. In other words, don't bother trying to figure out the will of the Lord on this because the priest would put his hand into his vestment to draw out these stones that would show yes or no to the will of God. Saul says, withdraw your hand, no need, because we hear the noise, it's increasing, we need to go follow after and pursue the Philistines. And so, verse 20, then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they went to the battle and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor. The Philistines were fighting each other and there was great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. What does that mean? Why were there Hebrews who were with the Philistines? Well, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says the Hebrew slaves. In other words, at some point the Philistines took some POWs. They took some prisoners of war among the Hebrews. And when this routing happened and God set the panic and the confusion, the Hebrews who had been taken captive and made slaves by the Philistines, they're like, well, we're leaving the Philistines now and we're joining back with our brothers and we're fighting with them. And verse 22 says, likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So, verse 23 The Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Bethaven. One point before we go from chapter 14. God does great things in response to our little faith. This was God's victory because God ultimately did win this battle for the Israelites. But what prompted God to move in such a great and glorious way 
were two guys who said, we're going to trust the Lord and we're going to fight for his glory. Just two. Just little faith that Jonathan and his armor bearer had. And it unleashed the greatness of God. Sometimes it's not, you know, great people with great faith. It's just average people with a little faith. And God will often do great things in response to that. And when we continue in this next Wednesday night, we'll begin to see here that although this is a great victory that God gave the Israelites, because Jonathan was at the heart of it, jealousy sets in in the heart of his father Saul, and Saul actually wants to kill him because of this. So we'll pick it up there next week. Let's pause and pray for tonight. Lord, we thank you for these lessons we can learn from your word, and we thank you that you still will do great things for your glory in response to the simple faith of average people. We thank you, Lord, for somebody like Jonathan who who just saw what you could do and for your glory wanted to do something so that you would be magnified in the land. And so you were. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how you still are at work in our lives. And we, we pray that as we study through these chapters that you will bring things to bear in our own hearts that we need to take away so that we can be obedient, Lord, so that we can trust you instead of the fearful things. So that we can exercise even the least little bit of faith and watch your mighty hand at work. And we thank you, Lord. You're still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we praise you together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.